The Beatles, whether you like them or don't, what's the first thought popping out of your mind when you hear that group's name? Like me, probably the most famous group ever. And one where you probably know every band member's name, Paul, John, George, Ringo. How about the word entrepreneurship or economics? I bet not. A few weeks back, I picked up Sam Staley's newest book, The Beatles and Economics. I'd already read Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead by Scott and Halligan. Bet you haven't heard of that book. So I was curious how Sam would interweave economics, entrepreneurship, and management with the Beatles. And you know what? Sam Staley, he got it right. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our topic is Sam's book, The Beatles and Economics. Sam, in his book, The Beatles and Economics, he looks at that group through an entrepreneurial lens, an economic lens. And it was so good that I didn't just read the Kindle version. I thought, hey, this is good. So during my evening walks, I also then decided to listen to it. Well, when I listened to it, I wanted a rebound book, a similar book. So I got another Audible book that I could listen to about the Beatles. That's how much I liked it. Oh, thank you so much. That's uh, that's great to hear. And I'm, and if that's what this book is doing, then I think it's definitely fulfilled one of its major purposes um, as well. Was because what we're trying to do. Well, I mean, honestly, the journey of this book was was not a, a conventional journey. I didn't go out to actually write a book about entrepreneurship. I actually got was using the Beatles just to sort of come up with an interesting hook for just introducing people to basic economic concepts. And then lo and behold, I found the economic lens gave us some insight that no one else had really um, d- 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 really dived into. And so it, I wish I could say that it was my brilliance is more I had a set of tools that I was able to apply. And that application of the tools allowed us to bring some insight into this phenomenon um, in a way that no one else had quite done it because I think most of the people are artists and fans, um, not economists. And I, I bet Sam gets this question a lot. Are you a Beatles fan? You know, that's an interesting question because I have to answer no. Um, and it's it's interesting in this way. So I began thinking, but the first time someone asked me that question, they, they assume I write this book on the Beatles because I'm a fan. Well, I, I think I was a very conventional 70s sort of, I, so I grew up in the late 60s and 70s, really started listening to music in the 70s. Um, and actually a little bit later than a lot of kids today, because I was much more in middle school and high school. And I was sort of a normal um, pop music. I'm more of a rock person, sort of a blues rock person. I gravitate toward that. But I also, as I began reflecting on it, realized, oh, well, I ha- well these were back in the days we had these um, record players where you could actually stack the albums. But I would actually stack out Beatles albums because that was the only way we could continuously listen to music. Um, at that time, but I didn't consider myself a fan. Um, I just thought I was, I was a normal music consumer and teenager. And it wasn't until, and I think 
the research in this book may led me to truly appreciate the Beatles and what they did. But if I'm uh, right now, I've got um, the blues channel on Sirius XM and that's what I'm listening to. That That's more my taste um, as well. So yeah, I think you can really appreciate how innovators can completely change things without actually becoming, you know, a fanboy or fangirl of them at the same time. I have a tremendous amount of respect for all four of the Beatles in ways that I never would have dreamed of um, without having gone into doing this research and looking at the Beatles as a band, as opposed to just a collection of four individuals. I then wanted to know how this book started from a germ of an idea that then moved into raw material and then an ongoing work in process, and then to a finished product. I, I wanted to understand the research as well through those phases. It helps that I've written books before. So this isn't my first rodeo. So I understand the structure of a book. I have a certain philosophy about how I write in fiction and nonfiction. And so I already had a structure of what I wanted to say. And so that helped, but really... I, it was two and a half years of just doing a lot of interesting and different kinds of research. So I was listening to a lot of interviews, watching a lot of YouTube videos, um, because this is a this is not our as economists. We often we get into a database, and then we start sort of just sort of manipulating numbers, or we just sort of write about theory or something like that. But the data was all visual, and a lot of it was audio. And so, and the Beatles didn't write a whole lot. I mean, they're, they're, they're musicians, they're artists, and that's how they express themselves. So getting into that, and I will have to say Sirius XM was phenomenal as a research source because they have a Beatles channel and they have lots of programming. And so when I'm in a car for a long time, I can just turn on the Beatles channel and I'm listening to all sorts of different configurations of their music. And that actually helped me pull, uh, really connect a lot of dots. And um, I could have done that on my own, but SiriusXM really helped a lot. <laughs> so I'm not sure that's, we, we, that would be considered a, a legitimate research source for my students, but uh, it was certainly valuable for this project. Sam mentions human capital in the book, which is an economics term. So I wanted to better understand Sam's perspective regarding the Beatles and human capital. Well, so as an economist, I look at human capital as the labor part of the production uh, equation. And when we talk about investing in human capital, we're really talking about creating systems and structures that allow humans to be productive and innovative and really use their talents and maximize and optimize those talents. So that's how we get productivity. That's how we get increased output in, in more efficient when, in that there's an innovation process that goes with that. But so when I talk about human capital, though, in the book, and particularly with the Beatles, it's really about how they evolve as musicians to get to the next level and how that continues over time. So, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm no longer 20 something economist. I should be able to 
use my economics training at a higher level than someone who's just gotten out of their PhD program or something like that. So those are all investments in human capital. I can do things that a, a freshly minted PhD can't do. Or if I've been working in my field, any of my field for 10 or 15 years, I can do something a junior person can't do. So when I think of human capital, it's the investment in the human part. And that's what I, that is something I thought was really important to understand the Beatles. They didn't just end up on the music scene as these highly accomplished musicians. Uh, there was a long process where they were, interestingly enough, investing in their own human capital when other people didn't believe in them. And so, and this is also a classic entrepreneurial story. You know, we believe we, it's not just about the passion of the art. It's that we think we have something and we can do well here and we're aspiring to this. And they really invested uh, in themselves. And it wasn't until much later. And I use a, uh, I have, um, have a section on one of their managers, Brian Epstein, who really was acting like a venture capitalist. But, and I think a lot of people don't quite realize that the venture capitalists come late in the innovation process. I mean, relatively late. They are crucial and critical, but uh, at, I think one of the important stories in the Beatles is that they're investing in their own talents and skills, and they're getting better. And that is a classic example of human capital investment. When I think of the origin of the Beatles, I instantly think Liverpool. But in this book, I learned about the Hamburg time period where the Beatles happened to find their new drummer, Ringo Starr. It's interesting you mentioned that you think of Liverpool, because in when we, I think a lot of people when we we know they're from Liverpool, but I think in the Beatles story a lot has been missing about what Liverpool was for them forming as a band, and that Hamburg wouldn't have happened without Liverpool, and the music scene at that particular time. Think of it this way: it's sort of Hamburg got them to be professional. It, it took, it gave them the venue and the experience they needed to become extremely tight as a band. And I think we need to remember that they're originally a performance band. They were a cover band. I think this is actually crucially important to understanding the human capital and the, and the later innovation components of this. And so Liverpool was this really scrappy music scene, and they had to do well to be successful there. Hamburg allowed them to really get to a professional level. And that's when they could start uh, not necessarily headlining, but be at the top of the playbills on tours with Roy Orbison, um, not so much Little Richard, but all of the, the top acts that were coming to England at the time probably would not have happened without Hamburg. And then Hamburg also meant that they achieved a certain skill level as masters of their instruments as well as playing as a band that allowed them to go to a whole nother level um, once they were headline acts. I know there are many books about this where they talk about the breakup of the Beatles, but I was curious, were they friends? Did they like each other? Did they respect one another? And while they did break up, why did they spend so much time together, which is about 10 years? I think, it, I mean, at the end of the day, they're artists. And as long as they could see that staying together as a band would create higher valued art, that's what connected them. It definitely helped that they were um, they were friends, 
and they were united toward a common goal, which was to become better. And then, yeah, they wanted to get rich, but really, you, when you dive into it, they all four of them are about the art. And there are different elements in taking of the art. So Ringo Starr is not known as a great songwriter, but he is a he defined the the role of the rock drummer um, through his experience, and he is a performance musician and the art that's part of that. And so they all respected each other, um, which was an important part of it. They were, and but we also have to remember when the Beatles broke up in 1970. Two of them were, they were still had just barely turned 30. So this decade was really late teens, early 20s, mid 20s. And so it's, uh, it, it is remarkable that they hung together at the same time. Also, I think the economics of the music industry uh, were such that it was really favoring bands staying together. But you find very quickly, I would say about 1964 or 65, the industry no, no longer had rules for the bands, for, for the Beatles. Um, the Beatles had done so much at that by that time. They could break up, but they chose not to. What held them together was the art and the innovation that was coming every, with every album they were creating. And this is a big part of what I talk about in the in the Beatles book is the innovation process, which is it truly is an innovation process. It's a little, it's not quite as discreet as a lot of people would like it. You know, I'll go through one through steps one through ten, and you get a you know iconic path breaking album. Um, but this is really about so there's a lot more going on, but it's uh, not that far different from what we see in most innovation processes and in business and entrepreneurship. Innovation is a critical requirement in any business, and that applies to bands and the music industry at large. So Sam compared the Beatles to two bands in his book, and there was one that was not mentioned, the Bee Gees. And regarding innovation, the Bee Gees, they evolved. Now, this is my opinion. They evolved with the trends in the music industry. But the Beatles, they did not. They truly innovated by continually creating new material that had never been heard before. But you're right in the in the sense that what the Bee Gees did is they were adapting to different styles, and they were really great songwriters within the the silos that they were working in. And I'm a fan. I mean, I guess we were talking earlier about fans. I mean, I enjoy listening to the Bee Gees and, and that type of thing as well. I have a pretty wide range of interest of uh, music that I enjoy in pop and pop music, but I needed, so uh, here's my research brain coming in my social scientist brain. I needed a band that was contemporary to the Beatles and I needed a, a band that had the potential to really be as innovative and break outside the box as the Beatles. And so these things had to be, uh, uh, synchronous and it had to be simultaneous and as i was doing my work and, and a lot of people say why didn't you use this band or this band or that band and I'm like, well i'm looking at the 1960s and this is a and there's a decade and we know because we're sitting in 2020 in 2021 that the beatles broke out of all of that they just changed everything in ways we i don't even think i i certainly did not appreciate till i was till i wrote the book and was doing the research 
So which other bands were really in a similar position? And it came down to the Beach Boys on this in the United States, which were um, earlier. Um, they, they made their mark earlier than the Beatles in 60, 61. And they created, a, they essentially, um, I'm not, I'm not, I can't say they created the genre of beach music, surf music, but they certainly brought it to entirely new levels and had the potential with the creative force of Brian Wilson behind it to really change things. And we see that with Pet Sounds and some of the later work that they were doing. And then the other is really the Rolling Stones, um, which is an, a London-based band. And they were all contemporaries. And, um, and so that's what I was, uh, so, but I needed bands that were having that level in a contemporary setting because otherwise, because I think part of what the Beatles did was they broke down, opened up so many new genres and legitimized so many new genres that many bands were able to follow them and do very well. The other thing is the breadth of the Beatles is, is just stunning, absolutely stunning. Uh, and I don't, I mean, it really, and you begin to see it as a progression. So I looked at it, and of course there may be another band that could have. I, it's just that I also wanted to bands that people would recognize, as opposed and ones that could have changed the changed the course of pop music. And I think the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones were really good candidates, and they were useful prisms for me to take what I'd learned from the Beatles and then try to apply it and say, well, why didn't the Rolling Stones have the same kind of broad-based impact? Clearly, they have set blues rock. I mean, there's no question. There's no other band that comes close. The Beach Boys, I thought, was much more interesting because they had as much potential as the Beatles. And when I looked at the dynamic between the Beach Boys and the Beatles, I became even more convinced in this because I think we we don't really recognize the degree to which there's collaboration across bands and artists in the 1960s. So Brian Wilson... Uh, in the Beach Boys, was inspired by Revolver, the band. And that inspired Pet Sounds, which was an extraordinarily creative um, endeavor. And then Pet Sounds inspired the Beatles, which helped lead to the innovation we see on the Sgt. Pepper album, which blew the doors off everybody at that point. And so looking at that dynamic was important. I think it helps tell the story of the Beatles, but I think it also tells the story of the innovation process and cultural entrepreneurship. And why didn't the, what happened with the Beach Boys? Well, they relied really on Brian Wilson as the creative force. And then he had severe mental illness issues emerge um, that were compounded by drug abuse. Um, and I'm not judging uh, Brian Wilson at all. I think it's really... Uh, it was just very, very difficult time. And we just, anyway, I, that's a whole nother hour of talking to sort of, you know, the tragic, the tragic consequence of not diagnosing mental illness correctly. And then seeing the kind of self-medication that ends up being just as destructive. But anyway, the, the bottom line is that mental illness took their most creative and only real creative force out of the beat, out of the beach boys. And it's really just a, uh, it continues as a cover band of the Beach Boys of the 1960s. I mean, they've had some success since then. I, that's a little too flippant, um, but uh, but and certainly they're very popular. Anyway, so those are the that's the the very long winded answer of why I ended up with those two bands as a comparison to the Beatles. There are reasons the Beatles quit touring, and I found this part interesting in the book. 
But in my opinion, is my interpretation, this turned out to be a significant inflection point during the history of this iconic band. Their heart and soul was in performance and rock and roll. And so for them to stop touring, and frankly, they stopped touring not because they got bored. It's because it was dangerous. It was physically dangerous for them to be touring. And it wasn't just the crowds. It was people burning books, burning their albums in the South um, because of their people getting weird things that never were intended out of some of the experimentation they were already doing. And so they found they weren't enjoying it. Um, they, they, you know, when they, and I think all four of them said, you know what, when we can't even hear our mates playing, and there, I think there's both a, at one point, Ringo definitely talks about this. And I think Paul may have said this as well, but Ringo was keeping beat based on how John was, or he could watching John on stage. And of course it's going back and forth, but they can't actually hear each other and they can't communicate. And it's not fun anymore. And so why are we putting this at, why are we doing this? And that's when they go in the studio. And the, by this time, they've already set the innovation process. So they're just not going to go in and record just stuff. Um, they want to continue to push the envelope. And the other part of this, which um, of the story, which I think is really important, they had established themselves well enough that EMI and Parlo- Parlophone, they wrote the, gave them a blank check in the studio, which was one of the original... That was one of the first things that got me interested in this. It was actually during the 50th anniversary of the Sgt. Pepper album. And I was actually going up to visit my brother in Nashville from Tallahassee. I'm in Florida State. And I began listening to the Sgt. Pepper and, and what they were talking about, the impact of this. I'm thinking, how did this come about? I mean, what would give a studio, which is a profit-making enterprise, allow them to essentially give a blank check to four artists who was that with no guarantee that what they was going to come out of this was going to be profitable. And so that really triggered this whole inquiry because something else had to be going on and I couldn't find any decent explanation. Um, It it isn't just because they're, they're brilliant. Um, Record studios don't invest in brilliant artists. They, they invest in artists that are going to generate revenue that will allow them to be successful and grow. And, and so something was going on. So that was it. So yeah, going into the studio and then just seeing, I think there, I think I try to really get into this a little bit in my book, but my book's a short book um, intentionally. And there are other resources that I want people to go to, but I think you get there, but the things they're doing in the studio are just off the charts. I mean, it is just, it's like John would say, John or Paul or whatever, they say, okay, they tell their engineers, we want this sound. And then they'd leave the studio. And then the engineer's like, how the heck, how, how are we going to do this? And they would spend the night trying to figure out how to do it. And they would do it. And these weren't, I mean, uh, George Martin, their uh, producer was a particularly insightful and creative person, but the other engineers were brilliant in a technical way, but not in an artistic way. And so they were just really good at what they did. And they just elevated their own game to the challenge that the Beatles were, and George Martin to some extent, were really asking them to go to. 
And without the studio, I, I think without that studio experience, we wouldn't have a lot of the most creative, innovative stuff. And I think um, they would have just been a really successful band. Probably still by the time 65, 66 comes along, they might still be getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But they are not the first people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or the first round. But after what happens in 66 and 67, it is uh, there's no question they're going to be in the rock if they when they if they when they create a rock and roll hall of fame there's no question that they're going to be in it as a band then the question becomes do they get as regular artists as solo artists which is a different story altogether sam mentioned the sergeant peppers album and that gets back to innovation again before paul and john would release any new song they asked the question is this new or does it sound good and is it different? No, and I think those two things are really important and they seem simple, but they're hard to actually make happen. And I think with people not understanding that has really led to a lot of misunderstanding about the dynamic of the Beatles as a band. And, um, you know, for example, a lot of people talk about how Paul McCartney and, or even at times John Lennon were just control freaks. They just didn't want, they just didn't want anybody else but their their songs and then we talk about how george harrison uh when they broke up he had 300 back you know uh, he had songs that he'd written and they all came out in a three album set right after they broke up but it's become a really well recognized um critically acclaimed three uh album set and people say well it's just because john and paul wouldn't let him well, and it was a lot, My, I think, I hope my book actually shows it's a lot more complicated than that. Because Paul McCartney had several hundred songs he had not, that did not make it onto a Beatles album either. And it gets back to this innovation process. And there are times when, I mean, George, uh, so I think George, in the book I talk about an example of George Harrison bringing a song. And they would say, well, this just sounds like, let's say, Chuck Berry or Little Richard. And then say, go back. <laughs> we're, we're not going to do Chuck Berry. We love Chuck Berry. We love Little Richard. They, uh, we love Elvis Presley. These are the icons of our youth and our cornerstones of our musical sensibility and interest. But we're just not here to do that anymore. We're not here to do covers anymore. We are here to advance art. And that, and we will be commercially successful that way. So, um, and then what happened, and this is a really cool part of their story. That last album, the last couple of years, George Harrison's songs were amazing. And the ones that made it onto the album, which John and Paul were completely 100% supportive, they admitted, and they, it wasn't even really a confession. It was like, George was a better songwriter in some cases than we are. And, and because if you, and then you look at the top 10, top 10, 10, 15 songs that are identified as classic Beatles, you'll typically find at least three, sometimes four George Harrison songs. So he was an extraordinary influence, but it took a lot longer for him to come along as our song, as our writer. But John and Paul were important. That innovation process was crucial for George Harrison to be able to become a good and a cutting edge songwriter like uh, John and Paul were. And that was, again, the innovation process, which drove that. It wasn't, I don't think, an innate brilliance. Um, it was the dynamic that they created in the team 
that was all united in this innovation process, which was centered on value creation, which was shared belief, even though it was not articulated. So I think my book is the first one that actually puts words to this. Every group of entrepreneurs needs a Brian Epstein. He was that CEO-like manager who could elevate the company without interfering with the art. And so when Sam introduces us to Epstein in the book, we're also brought the term venture capital. What he was doing, and this is why I think I use the venture capital analogy or the metaphor in this case, because there are, there are people that see value where other people's do not. The other people do not. Brian Epstein was one of those people. And he also had enough of a foothold in the retail side of the industry. He knew what parts to bring together to make it work. So he's the, the now they had already had their first residency in Hamburg before they moved to Brian Epstein. What Brian was able to do is really take it to that next level because he understood what the other parts needed to be. And then he continued to work with them with that. I think what was also very important for Epstein is that he understood he, it wasn't his role to change the music and the art. It was more to elevate the company and the, and the team. And so he never used his own interests or thought that his own interests were more important than the band. Same thing with George Martin in the recording studio. Extraordinary human being, extraordinary artistic. I mean, really enhanced the Beatles in ways that very, I'm not sure, I would be harder to replace George Martin than it would have been Brian Epstein. Um, George Martin was, I think, I think if we're going to ask that question, I would say without George Martin, we may not have had a Beatles. Um, Brian Epstein, we could have found someone else that could still get them to the level they needed to be to be a, a very successful touring band, maybe something on the scale of a Rolling Stones, which of course is amazing um, and extraordinary, but not the genre busting, innovative disruptors that the Beatles were uh, and became. But, um, but so Brian was really important. And the other thing is we have to remember that these are teenagers in the early 20s. Um, we were talking about 19, 20, 21-year-olds. And so Brian served a – there's probably a book in this. When you're dealing with young talent, having someone with the ethical backbone and, the, and willingness to take on the responsibility to guide young people was an incredibly important virtue that was embedded in Brian Epstein. And the, and the Beatles recognized that. They trusted him implicitly. He was completely committed to them. And maybe because I'm a, I'm a professor and I teach undergraduates, I'm particularly in tune with this. Um, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, they, they, they don't want to be us. They want our mentorship and our guidance, and they want us to support them. And if we do that correctly, we create magic. And so Brian brought that to this, and um, he saw the vision, he saw what they could do, he saw the value, but he never compromised the he never compromised the relationship. And he was a very he was a father figure in many ways. He was definitely their business manager, very successful, and he did go off the rails a little bit on business back in the, in the mid sixties. 
and that that was really created some complications as well. But I think it was, his his passing was uh, was was tragic for the Beatles in music as well because it. Would, they may have actually continued a couple more years if Brian had not passed away um, because the managers they had afterwards did not have the same level of ethics or the same level of commitment to the Beatles as a band that he did. Uh, by the way, Sam mentioned George Martin. He was the Beatles producer and Paul McCartney has called him the fifth Beatle who happened to pass away in 2016. Ron Baker has been on our show twice. He's a co-host of my favorite show, The Soul of Enterprise. And while econ can be an intimidating topic, my opinion is that uh, many of us took anywhere from two to three classes in economics, and maybe we got turned off. But Ron has reminded me that economics and entrepreneurship, they are not at odds with one another at all. And Sam agreed with that by even saying that economics, it's not about math or formulas. Economics is the study of social behavior. Um, I actually am trained, and I, I completely believe wholeheartedly in a branch of economics that really looked uh, well. Looked it's, it looks at economics as a branch of sociology historically. I mean, going back over a century. So we're looking at the way societies operate, and we look at the connections. And it's a human science. It's a social science. So I think everything we do has an economic component to it. And so to the extent that entrepreneurs ignore that, they do it at their own peril. Um, Essentially what that becomes is an ego-driven type of behavior and activity that will not necessarily monetize in the marketplace or create meaningful value. And I think, again, this is what I, I think what really drew me into the Beatles and writing the book was really sort of getting an opportunity to sort of look at these connections. Um, entrepreneurs need the market, um, without a doubt. They need people. And I think the management, where the management comes in is that too often we, well, I think there are two parts. One is sometimes we're late to appreciating that we need to think about all of our, all of our employees as potential innovators and as potential leaders within our organizations. And we really struggle with trying to find the tools and to, to do that. And I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is just respecting the talents of the people that are in your organization, creating pathways for them, but also being willing to support them as long as they're adding value in whatever way possible. I know that, well, of course, I'm in a very compressed world, but I teach in my entrepreneurship classes and in my center where we have 30 people working for us, I fully recognize that my staff and my students will graduate. I have an 80% turnover every two years, and that's built in. And what, what that has allowed me to appreciate is the importance of continuing to invest in talent without thinking that necessarily the return has to be immediate or it only is relevant while they're here. And of course, as you get add more years to your life, you realize that we've got this amazing network of people that we've created, uh, that we've helped support. And that comes back. Um, that comes back as we're doing new things. And so I think that's kind of where where the economics and the entrepreneurship, it's sort of it, it's sort of being open to new innovation, discovering new opportunities that the market is not serving. And then figuring out how we bring our human capital to bear on filling those gaps 
by creating new value. And that is, there's an art to that. Um, there's, it's not all science, but there are certainly some really well-established principles right now for management that probably a lot of um, those of us in the C-suite, I'm actually, I guess I'm not really in the C-suite, but uh, those of us that are in leadership positions need to pay a little bit more attention to social psychology and human psychology and how that uh, relates to value creation and also understanding the benefits and downsides of disruption both within within our organizations as well as outside. If you've been a longtime listener of CFO Bookshelf, you know that, of course, I like books and I like asking people, what are they reading? What do they like? And Sam mentioned that one of his favorite books happens to be one of my favorites by Chip and Dan Heath, Switch. But I still wanted to know what he's reading right now. Right now I'm reading a great book called Lean Impact, um, which we just added to our class this year um, by Ann Mai Chang. And she is a tech entrepreneur that went into the, and to work for the Department of State and has really looked at how we create social impact and really thought very carefully about the relationship between conventional and private sector business approaches and social impact, which is in becoming increasingly important. There's also, um, you know, I, I, I have my students read this. It's incredibly important, but it's really hard because really it's written by a classic in a classic style, which is really dense. It's a book called Competition and Entrepreneurship by Israel Kersner, a 1973 University of Chicago Press. I, I have yet to find something that really gets to the essence of what an entrepreneur does in the market the way Kersner does. And the interesting thing is that the entrepreneurship literature and the that branch now that has emerged mainly in management, not economics, has embraced Kersner's concepts and ideas. And so fortunately, they've made it more accessible. But I have anchored a lot of my work around those three books. We have other books as well, which are, are valuable. But in terms of the management, uh, sort of getting, and I believe, uh, the management space, the entrepreneurship space. Those are books I conti I'm continually going back to. I've, I've asked this question to Ron Baker. I mentioned him a few minutes ago, but econ books, what are some economic books that are approachable and accessible for business leaders who are busy and don't want to get bogged down into a content that's just too hard to understand? And Sam has a couple of good ideas there are a couple of ways to do this, and in part it depends on how your what your entryway is into the topic. So there's this really amazing, accessible book called Common Sense Economics, and it literally is what are these core principles that sort of drive economics. And if I remember right, uh, James Gortney, um, Richard Stroop, I want to think is a is a co-author, but it's called Common Sense Economics. And I don't teach out of that because I'm teaching upper division students. Um, but I've found when I'm reading, it's like, wow, yeah, this is a book that I would give it. Um, it the Beatles and Economist was supposed to do some of that, but it ended up being much more about innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, but Rutledge, my publisher, has this whole series on economics and pop culture, which my this book is in that series. I, I would almost say go to that series 
and just sort of find a topic that interests you. Because I have another book called uh, Contemporary Film and Economics, which is much more about introducing uh, the reader to basic economics through contemporary film. And I think that's just more engaging. And most of those books in that series, in fact, really do. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to take people who would not normally read economics, give them a format and a platform that is more engaging and isn't the standard principles textbook. And so there are, and there are more and more of those. Um, but I would say that that's probably where, where I start. Again, I want to thank Sam Staley for joining us on CFO Bookshelf. I, I could listen to him all day. Uh, the title is The Beatles and Economics. And as a brief recap, I'm first reminded that entrepreneurship is art. Management is needed and necessary, but it's all about the art. But then what is art? So let's start with human capital. Human capital is that which believes in itself so much, it keeps reinvesting in itself. And then art is also innovation, which asks the question, is this good and has it been done before? Let's call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf and Sam Staley. You, my friend, you're a rock star too. Mark, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you.